1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, my name is Salal Dean. You're listening to the New Books Network Library Science Channel. Um, I am here with Simone Gigliotti. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that's fine. The author of Restless Archive, the Holocaust and the Cinema of the Displaced. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself and your book? And I think especially in your case, uh, the format of your book, which is Digital Forward.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Halal. My name is Simone Giuliotti, and I'm a reader in Holocaust Studies, which is like an almost professor um, in the history department at Royal Holloway University of London um, in the United Kingdom. And the book or the project Restless Archive looks at how films and archival fragments um, about refugees and displaced persons have really formed the background of Holocaust cinema, but have not really been studied in their own right. And they're kind of a shadow cinema. And so, my goal in this project, which is a kind of multi dimensional expression as a multi layered book, digital exhibition, and a kind of repatriation of these archives into a kind of two platforms mainly, and to showcase these practices of image making. Um, and how refugees and Jewish displaced persons were depicted. Um, And I do that through providing, um, you know, the book as you see it um, online, as you would scholars conceptualize a book. And then the challenge was really about how we uh, kind of express that in a digital format And then looking at the limitations and potential of that format and how else I could augment that with other platforms to really realize the argument of kind of history as um, practices of spatiality and movement and embedding the archive into the locations of history, so to speak.
0: So what are some of the other technologies that are integrated into the book? Okay,
1: so the book, well, Manifold is a kind of open source, it's not open source, we wish it was, but it's not. It's a kind of digital publishing platform and it's really pioneered uh, in the United States um, through a kind of scholarly collaboration and with uh, creative tech collaboration. And lots of publishers have their book uh, catalogues on there, things that have been published in print and um, uh, kind of migrated So that's one of the platforms. Um, And then I've used uh, Story Maps, which I've worked with quite a while. And this is an Esri uh, kind of geospatial storytelling platform. And uh, I've used that to kind of help me create maps, digital maps from archival sources. And then I've also learned things like Vimeo, Adobe, Creative Cloud, um, you know, making websites, uh, film trailers, just to think through some of the concepts, but also to engage the reader in a way that is very visual and speaks to the, you know, limited attention span of some, you know, I want to kind of bring them in, in a way. So I wanted to communicate visually um, and to kind of put the readers in the moment, so to speak.
0: And to anyone who's listening, this everything um, is open access, and I will link it in the episode notes. So as we're discussing, you can actually just (laughs) click through, which is not true of any interview I've done so far. Um, So there's a lot of material and to read and to sort of consume in other other ways um so let's let's talk about this archive that you are studying as you put it in the book the archive is fragmented and locationally dispersed Uh, so how did you conceptualize it what exactly are you investigating and what were what were the limits of the archive as you imagined it
1: so the fragmented and locationally dispersed. So working with film archives and film books, uh, some scholars might look at you know a chapter per book, for example, um, to form the kind of narrative content. But as a historian and also someone who works in interdisciplinary studies, I'm interested in image making and image dissemination and what is the archive in this sense. And I think with the Holocaust cinema we have a very fused and blended if not distorted kind of archive you know lots of images blend and bleed into each other so i was not kind of um aware of in some of them where their kind of origins are and i was interested in non-fiction which is again a loose term um, when we think about image making but i was interested in in where do today's image archives reside not you know feature cinema but also documentary cinema home movies you know the 1930s 1920s uh, kind of um, you know eastern interwar Europe period the YIVO archives there's so much you know there's JDC Yad Vashem YIVO as I mentioned USHMM national institutions but less so and less kind of known about or discussed are the private home movie archives so my goal here was really to open up for the reader and the viewer, some of these archival materials, but uniting all of them was the focus on displacement in the 1930s and the 1940s and how we can really uh, bring these archives together in the platforms, curate them uh, and provide a kind of, almost like a kind of a guide or roadmap through the amazingly dispersed archive um, and what this kind of reveal about the political sentiments, the prejudices, and also the ambitions of Jewish refugees and displaced persons who want to transcend those categories and you know, seek a home, seek a place, and how they're obstructed uh, in doing so. And it's a very politically, uh, you know, idiot- politically tense period to say the least. But there's also a, a, an immense creative process that is actually speaks to this displacement.
0: I think it's really interesting that you just called the archive a roadmap, <laughs> given. Uh, the, the content of the book. Um, yeah, a lot of ways to conceptualize and understand historical movement that we will get into shortly. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the subjects you you just said you're interested in these people who were displaced, they were migrating, they were seeking home, and that is a, a core concept in Restless Archive, this concept of the home seeker. Where did you draw this idea from and how does it apply to the archival subjects you're writing about?
1: So The Home Seeker, uh, you know, I first read about this in uh, the Iranian scholar Hamid Nafisi's uh, book, An Accented Cinema, Exilic and Diasporic Filmmaking, and he published this over 20 years ago. And he originated this concept to describe how filmmakers used uh, cinema, many feature films, to explore experiences of refugeehood and displacement in the third, so-called third world and global south since the 1950s and 60s. And my challenge, I think, was to see if we could migrate the spatial nuances of this concept of displacement and diaspora to filmmaking from the 1930s and 40s without diluting its original meaning. And so that's the real, the challenge is to, You know, oftentimes these are kind of highly politicized concepts, and they still are. And, but for me, home seeking is a kind of universal concept and it's portable and it's a really productive way to track repeated movements of refugees, survivors, and displaced persons. And, I looked at uh, in the book as a way to kind of extract some of the spatial practices. I use this idea of home seeking to identify the kind of individual. So in Chapter 1, for example, we just have a a Jewish refugees and displaced persons as a spatial figure and then I talk about the mobility action being immigration and then displaced persons uh, in Chapter 2, Come on, and then chapter three, we have unhomed Jewish and non Jewish children. So, the idea of the home seeking uh, individual is you know age ageless and also covers a great deal of kind of terrain and topography, but also it's a very I've talked about as being you know heavily obviously geopolitical, territorial, personal, emotional, frustrating, and obstructed. And so, really, how we think about movement. Is um, I really wanted to return it to places and unpack these kind of constructs that we have. Um, and some people have said, Simone isn't a home seeker, just another sentiment for a refugee and displaced person. And I've said, yes, however, I want to kind of think about uh, uh, talking about a kind of universal condition and saying that there's something more about. Um, the you know, more about the kind of administrative category or the stateless category of the refugee and displaced persons and people occupy these positions repeatedly and in different times and places. And I think it's a bit more of a, a flexible category, so to speak, that it's for Jewish and non-Jewish uh, kind of migrations. So
0: how does cinema come into this? How did, how, using cinema, these... Films as a primary source allow you as a historian to not just reconstruct the geographic movement, but uh, kind of complicate in all of these ways the social and emotional and political all of these categories that you were interested in. And how how does that compare to? I think especially if we're thinking about geographic movement, how do how does cinema compare to? other primary sources that are maybe more traditionally associated with that kind of work?
1: I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Hello. I'm not sure if I'll answer it fully, but I will try. So, and I think, you know, cinema to me is a cartography in itself. You know, it starts with a story. It gives you origins of character, of place, of movement, of, you know, the internal itinerary of the story and the kind of filmic uh, images that really constitute either a short film or a feature film, they still have a mapping ambition and enterprise. And some of them in the films that I looked at, they were all really about place making, place leaving, and about the Jewish refugee and displaced uh, condition. So I looked at some, for example, So They Live Again, which is in Chapter 3, and it explores the displacement of Jewish children in Tehran. So this film is what I'd say is geography light, <laughs> meaning it gives us some sense of location through the narration, so these voiceovers, but it also has the integration of cinematic mapping and orientation through you know, these city maps and these devices. And this is a direct appeal to the viewer to empathise with the journeys of the children and the scales of displacement. We also have other kinds of mobility and movement that are more uh, domestic and intimate, such as in Chapter 6, where I look at kind of so-called home movies within DP camps, and here these um, self-screenings allow us to think about scale and intimacy and the level of the filmmaker, um, but how they also construct their own spatial Zones. So the films themselves, we can read them as narrative maps, but we can kind of look at films as ways to map environments and places and engagements. Um, And I think tools of geospatial analysis, which I looked at in the book and I do later on in Chapter 7 and 8, help us tag images to locations. Um, And I think as well an important companion to film is the photographic archive. And I've tried to create what I call kind of photocartographies of the movement of Jewish um, displaced persons on the Brikah from um, Europe to Palestine um, to kind of talk about, you know, how the mapping of these images give us a new version, a kind of animated, activated version of landscapes and historical movement. So it's kind of trying to rethink our reliance on kind of the singular media of an archive to tell the story but to bring them together and have a broader conversation.
0: Very quickly, can you discuss the cinemaps? I was not familiar with them as a category <laughs>
1: inuller <until laughs> in <read> the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So a cinemap for example, if you are watching even a commercial, if you're seeing an ad and then will be like a pop-up of a map and it gives you these animations of direction, orientation, that is a kind of cinema and in most of the the kind of fundraiser films that I look at um, or in chapters three and four, they're kind of educating the viewer. So it's introducing a geographic literacy because, you know, some people are kind of, you know, need a bit more guidance in knowing where places are and this was particularly uh, apparent in these films from this time period because they were almost like an educational intervention to say but the world is big, people are dispersed in many locations, but you need to understand that this is where they're going from and coming to, but also these maps were kind of politically um, problematic because they're also kind of showing people, you know, oh, they might be coming closer to you, uh, this is what you need to do to intervene to prevent this in a way. So it's as much educational as kind of uh, a caution and this, the city maps still occur, but more so in the cartographic um, narratives of, say, ArcGIS and story maps today when mapping migration. Uh, I look at a little bit of that in the later chapters of the book and in the conclusion where we talk about mapping practices in cinema and these kind of distortions and disruptions, I guess, of, the, of how people understand place and possible threats to their stability.
0: I want to talk a little more about the fundraising films. Um, there are a lot. I mean, there are a lot of genres that you address, and I personally saw them as a sort of contrast to another really interesting. Well, the fundraising films are kind of throughout the book, um, and there you have this chapter on home movies. And I maybe overly simplistically saw them in sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, um, specifically in terms of the ways that these DPs were able to construct their own images. Um, so would you be able to talk about that a little bit?
1: I can. I mean, and a very kind of just to continue what you said, I agree. And, you know, the demarcation is, is is right in a way. So you can imagine if we do a basic analogy, you know, someone being in front of the camera and then someone being behind and in front of the camera. So the fundraiser films were designed to, uh, you know, raise monies um, among American, many Jewish audiences to support fundraising efforts and the JDC, the United Jewish Appeal, and other organizations in the United States, um, Zionist organizations in Palestine and and many others to, uh, you know, multi hundreds of millions of dollars, these appeals to fundraise for, uh, you know, education, supplies, uh, basic relief provision, staffing, personnel. So the fundraisers were an interesting uh, genre and there's um, been some writing about them. These are short films. And to me, they're an early kind of, Holocaust cinema as such because they use the images of liberation and also wartime, mainly Nazi images from wartime, then liberated images from the early post-war period and they kind of edit a kind of a version of survival, of persecution and survival that is what I, I think what you'd probably expect to see right this persecution survival this is they're tortured people are homeless people have need clothes but they use a lot of the kind of tropes we associate with the holocaust today of barbed wire of tattoos um of these kind of emaciated bodies it is kind of unsettling but these fundraising films were also kind of ubiquitous as well in kind of um, circulation and cinemas for example so the um, projections of the the home movies for example um, is much more individual. So fundraisers we can say institutional and the home movies are individual and they provide a kind of rejection of that image of the institutional image. So they to me they represent a kind of visual liberation of these Holocaust era images. And these Holocaust era images that appear in fundraiser films tend to freeze the survivors uh, into a permanent state of dependency uh, on relief organizations. Whereas the home movies, although they're silent and the institutional fundraisers are vocalized, they tend to really force you to identify with the survivors and the living. Um, and they occupy a homing instinct and intention and they permit the survivors an agency to assert and create their own images of self and family. Um, and the and what's interesting, in fact, is that the people who made these home movies don't really leave a lot of materials about the making of the home movies. They leave a lot of other materials. So, therefore, how do we read the intention of what they're showing? So, therefore, we look at the images repeatedly and we must associate them with the other archives through kind of distant reading to infer what their argument is. So Jack Sutton was one such person, and he was a camp photographer, uh, for example, and he made a lot of films. He was a portrait photographer. He was very proud of the family that he um, you know, he made during his time in Munich, uh, and the images that he left both uh, the photography and the film, they do show this visual resistance to genocide, but they also embrace a future. And showed uh, some of these images show him as walking on for the camera, you know, repeatedly. The daughter Cecilia is being paraded as little kids are supposed to be doing in films, and then they want to express this freedom of movement and ability to record it. So you can see in these films and photography, documentation was his mission and passion. And so these home movies are much more individual Uh, eclectic idiosyncratic and the fundraisers are a bit more institutional public and purposeful and that i think there's a they they are quite distinct and you're right to really identify them but my goal with juxtaposing them was to actually say there is no singular cinema of the displaced there's many kinds of cinemas maybe i should have called the book cinemas of the displaced but it's too late now
0: correct me if i'm wrong Were the fundraising films called incentive films originally? I thought that was a really interesting phrase. I'd never come across that. Yeah,
1: so incentive films, um, and they weren't, you know, they weren't alone with these films. There were many others, you know, wartime, post-war education films. So the incentive was to, not just a kind of financial incentive, but there's an ideological incentive too, isn't there, to identify to support their tools of mobilisation and kind of education and alignment with particular vision that's being spouted. So if you were kind of a, an unthinking kind of or not too, you know, uh, on it, you would say, yes, you know, this is I, I do agree. And these films were very effective in fundraising and that was the intention, but they haven't really been subjected to much of a critical uh, analysis.
0: No, and there's so many. One of the questions I have you you address this, um the availability of sources when it comes to the home movies as compared to a lot of the other subgenres of Holocaust cinemas that you are looking at. Um did you feel did you feel limited at all in your analysis just given the somewhat reduced access just because of the way that I th- suspect fewer were produced and certainly fewer were archived and available digitally and all of these things. Was that an issue for you?
1: Um, well, you know, I'd been to the USHMM back in 2012 and I identified, you know, the range of movies, you know, fragments, newsreels that were available from these individual filmmakers. In fact, the USHMM has a great range uh, you know, of these, but most of them are not readily digitised, so you have to write to them and ask them for access, whereas the Steven Spielberg uh, Film and Video Archive um, at the USHMM and also in, um, at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, many of them have been kind of digitised. So I think the accessibility is a big uh, influence on the kind of knowledge uh, about them, but also I think in a broader sense, I think there's a difficult place for these home movies because they don't fit the canon of what the kind of public sees as the Holocaust. You know, they show survival and I think survival struggles to be integrated as a kind of visual knowledge of the Holocaust and hence the kind of argument I talk about is the, you know, the persistent focus on the 1930s into war period of films in Eastern Europe, as it should be, but where do these films fit in to these kind of visual image making, this visual culture and memory? And my goal was to really try to push that argument forward some more. I wrote that down, what you just
0: said, survival struggles to be integrated as a visual knowledge. Um, And one, one of the things that really struck me in the... And I think this is a natural byproduct, right, of this sort of self-determination that these are in the home movies. These are these artifacts that are being created by and for the DPs themselves. One of the things that struck me that you do you do make explicit is the way that a lot of these complicate. If you think of what probably the average person on the street thinks of as the Holocaust experience, it's You're in a ghetto, and then you're put on a train, and you go to a camp, and then you're either liberated or not, not to be too glib about it. Um, But a lot of these home movies depict people who have had experiences, none none of the above, right? Like That were on these migratory patterns that are not exceptionally well-known. That were not in camps at all. You know, there's all of these range, there's a there's an enormous range of experiences that are the Holocaust, um, that are not not just I it's the same question, right? They're not part of the cinema, they're not part of the culture, and they're not that well known. It's the arrow is going both directions. But
1: that kind of oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think the the challenge, I think, is to bring in these new places and roots of the Holocaust into this understanding, whereas I think we have the kind of public cinema has a very camp, ghetto-focused knowledge and mainly drawn from kind of feature films and liberation footage from the 19th May, June 1945. This is the issue and some of the liberations from Auschwitz and Maidanek. So we're talking about a kind of narrow Geography of visual kind of information, so to speak, yeah. and so that is it addresses your yeah your kind of questions. That gets
0: at another phrase that struck me in from the book, which is this idea of the archive of motion. Um, what does this archive of visual, and uh, in library world, what we call? time-based media recordings of either sound or film. Uh, What do they, what does this archive reveal that an archive of say documents, static static things cannot?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure if my answer will satisfy, but for me, it's the archive of motion. You know, as a historian, I've always been drawn to images and image making. And I thought, when writing this book, I didn't really how I, how could I write about film without showing it? I don't, you know, I don't really warm to film books where you they assume you know the film, they assume you know the clip you're talking about. But here, I wanted to actually, it's about an integrated uh, experience of the reader come viewer. So the archive of motion is to really think about, you know, the moving image archive, but also to give it an orientation and also a pace, right? So the, the unstable and on the move with a wavering pace, much like in the way that the refugees and displaced persons experienced, you know, this historical moment was a kind of repeated displacement of months and years. But how do we actually... Express that in a kind of written form, or well, we don't really do that that well. But whether or not film is another kind of way of, you know, writing, um, and this was talked about in chapter nine, where they talk nine, where I talk about film and it's as a kind of form of writing with a camera, and therefore the archive of motion for me is a ref. Uh, I've talked about as being a refusal or rejection of stability, and it's a really a mechanised way of seeing, but I don't think documents can't be that either. It's a, it's really about a transformation of the document into a kind of a moving, you know, a form and what you do with this. So subjecting them to a kind of transformation, the idea of activating the archives, which means putting archives into their locational spaces. Um, And this can be done with static analogue documents, tagging them to locations. So for me, it's actually a way, a mode of interaction. So taking either film or the document and elevating it and giving it another kind of life story, an interactive uh, kind of possibility. Um, Same as when I think about photographic contact sheets. You know, we just see often photos. But when you see the whole contact sheets, you know, you have a big story here, and for me, this is an archive of motion too, but whether or not the mechanics of, you know, as Benjamin talked about, the work of art and the age of mechanical reproduction, so we talk about the document here, you know, what is the, the status of the document and the um, age of digital production or reproduction or transformation? Are we looking at kind of similar transformation possibilities, not just the document but elevating them into other kind of ways of reading or knowledge construction
0: for any listeners this is not the first time I'm going to have to link Walter Benjamin's the work of art in the age of mechanic reproduction in the liner notes it will be linked if you're interested I'll link the other episode where that also comes up Um, I'm sure it won't be the last time it's interesting I think anyone who works with an archive is doing exactly what you just described i think this reinterpretation is is a form of motion regardless of how legible it is um but i think the end product of this book is a really i think effective example of what can come of the, the scholar the researcher whoever being really deliberate about telling us what they're doing with the documents, right? Um I think everybody I don't I don't think this is news to any historian. I think everybody thinks about it. Um but I think there is still some sort of resistance to talking about the process, this kind of like met- meta cognition that's happening. But I as a as a reader, I find it really interesting, not just cuz I'm an archivist. <laughs> anyway, and take a bit of a a bit of a turn because I there's a really interesting chapter that I want to make sure that we talk about. You mentioned chapter three, um, this children, this this chapter on children um and how they're understood in Holocaust cinema. And one thing, one thing I want to flag really quickly um, that really stuck out to me is this idea of children, these children who have lost cust someone has lost custody of them, their parents, their country, perhaps the international community insofar so far as everyone is responsible for children. Um, this idea of uncontrolled mobility in these children. Um, I don't want to get ahead of your answer. I will I will let you answer. Um, But I think given the the broader context of the project, and then there's this really just core example of we often think of mobility as a sort of freedom. Um, And I think this chapter really drives home the ways that it is not it can be a burden, it can be unmanageable. Anyway, I'm going to let you answer. I'm going to stop talking.
1: Mm-hmm. No, thank you, Hello. Um Yeah, so this was a really interesting kind of chapter to write because it's so rich and children have occupied, uh, you know, a focal point for many scholars of the Holocaust and talking about uh, children's representation in film, in hiding, and orphanages, and you know, don't get me started on Life is Beautiful, so I won't. However... <laughs> But I was going to say that children, I looked at, you know, mainly um, some kind of fundraiser films in Seeds of Destiny, which was a kind of behemoth for its time. And I looked at, you know, this was an interesting case, Um, you know, David Miller was a kind of filmmaker for the US Army and uh, I'd actually looked at the archives in uh, Beverly Hills and I was able to reconstruct his journey across Europe and Africa based on their expense accounts, where they went and there's a huge archive there I'm kind of waiting to be really looked at in detail, but really as much as this film is about the children, it's also about the filmmakers and their commitment to understanding the kind of epic displacement and really children to kind of find children, rehome them, get them off the streets, this was the kind of challenge of orphaned and unaccompanied children. So I talked about how children, um, you know, at the time in fiction and non-fiction film were the most kind of reliable and, of course, tragic narrators of the Holocaust extremity and its displacement. And when I mean displacement from families, nations, societies, kind of, morals that they should be kind of taught with and retain. And they're the most effective communicators to audiences about the need to build moral and financial partnerships for peace building and reconstruction. And this was particularly in fundraiser films. The films that I looked at were a mix of um, kind of Zionist films, US Army films, uh, for example, and they projected children of symbols of national and familial decline and the objects of custody. So where and to whom do these orphaned or unclaimed children belong? Was it to the Zionist organizations who were wanting to say, let's bring the children to Palestine or the orphanages in Europe or the foster families that were lining up? to take them because they didn't have children or wanted more for whatever reason. So it's not only a post-war question, it was anticipated during the 1930s era of migration and persecution. So here, even in this period, we see representations of helplessness, dependency, and the necessity of relocation to boarding schools, convents, hiding, or resettlement schemes like the kinder transport. and you know there's a new film called One Life with Anthony Hopkins, coming out about Nicholas Winton. So it's this kind of persistence of this rescue narrative. Children have constructed as symbols of decline and hope. Um, And Holocaust cinema is no different in projecting these kind of binaries. But these films also did something and raised the alarm about the future of children outdoors in untamed and wild totalitarian landscapes. As much as war put children outside into the rubble and the roads into danger, post-war cinema wanted to put them back inside the home, right, and limit their mobility. And here there are large associations about the politics and places of play and regulated movement. So there's something about outdoor living. This is paramount, I think, not just in this chapter but in other chapters too, as to where do people live while they're displaced, you know, where do these children, where do they find a home? Is it in the rubble, in old buildings, etc.? And it was also apparent in post-war European cinema. So films like Somewhere in Europe, um, The Search. This is a real preoccupation with kind of Hungarian and French cinema, in particular German, the neorealist cinema, the Italian neorealist cinema. So it's about, you know, children carried the burden, as you said, of wartime events and storytelling and you know that they were would really appeal to this international morality and mindset about rescue and finding them a decent home and thereby reversing the kind of future totalitarian, you know, uh, seed that had been planted. It was all about reversing that. That's particularly apparent in Seeds of Destiny.
0: I will admit my bias here, which is that I... I've written about this. I should probably write about it more. (laughs) But children as archival subjects, for for very good reasons, Uh, there are very, very limited collections um, that are directly from children in real time. Even if we look at the Holocaust literature, there's plenty on the experiences of children. Um, A lot of it is sort of constructed from all sorts of administrative records a lot of it is from adults recollecting childhood experiences i got interested in this because i i work at yivo as you know and perhaps anyone listening knows but if you haven't read my little bio that's that's where i work we have a collection um from we have a, we have a collection of i'll link it of um, their transcripts of sort of what we would now call oral histories and children, uh, sorry, paint drawings collected from children in these post-war orphanages. And I was working with it, and I was like, we don't, I've never seen anything, I've seen very little directly from young children. There's plenty from adolescents, but, right, so I, did i got interested in this idea of children as subjects and there's really across this is something i think the archival field um is becoming more interested in but you know children depending on where you are regardless of where you are the scale differs but they're an enormous portion of any population really and they have distinct experiences from adults and in collections you know archivists whoever are not going directly to them for good kind of moral reasons um but it means there's this major gap and i think i think these i think the my goodness what is this film called seeds of destiny <laughs> i think see i think it's a this really interesting example that goes into what we were talking about earlier with the fundraising films of this sort of lack of self-determination and how you're represented. Um, And I think children have that across the board in a lot of, a lot of areas of scholarship. Um, And I think a lot of, a lot of what you write about here um, really gets at that. That's my, that's my soapbox. That's my archivist. (laughs) So, soapbox about children in the archival record
1: and hello do you mind me asking you a question okay and those records that you looked at i mean how do you enter that debate about self-representation then of children and agency
0: so i in the process of writing the one piece that i wrote on this um and again i know that i'm talking about it i think i should pick it up again (laughs) but i i had um this was at this was during covid and a lot of libraries and archives were doing these you know submit your COVID 19 experiences to our collections and i got in touch with a number of um archivists and librarians who were actively soliciting from children Um, yeah, and I talked, you know, they weren't like going out of their way, but they were open to children. I talked to one, um, one organization that was actively soliciting from teenagers and I kind of talked to them about how they were thinking about that and what was coming up. And where I landed is, it's something either, you know, if if a guardian, in terms of consent, if a guardian is comfortable with children, their their charges sharing, I think that's, that's fine. I think being in an archive, um, sharing your experiences is for a lot of people kind of empowering, even for children. And then in terms of how we kind of understand children as reliable historical sources, I think anyone who's responsibly doing history research approaches any any source with the understanding that that these are mediated reports, these are you have to understand things in their context, et cetera, et cetera. I think perhaps you think about it differently for children, but I think a lot of the arguments against collecting from children kind of imply that otherwise you're not thinking about it at all, which I don't think is I don't think is true. I think you just know this is from a young child and you uh, uh kind of analyze it appropriately but that's true for any anything from anyone right
1: i think you're right and the kind of uh, the perspective is important and I, I kind of asked you that question because one of my other projects and when I kind of work on as most people do on the side is on um you know mapping and survivors maps and how they saw their worldview. And I went to the Vienna Holocaust Library in London, you know, to discuss what sources they had. And they said, Simone, have you seen this project? And it was by um, an organisation, NGO, called Waging Peace. And they were drawn by child survivors of the genocide in Darfur. So they have 500 of these images, and exactly like you were talking about, um, and this campaigns, this organisation against genocide and abuses. And then what was interesting, in November 2007, the drawings were accepted by the International Criminal Court as contextual evidence of the crimes committed in Darfur. So this is a kind of transformation, again, isn't it, of these drawings as this kind of evidentiary um, kind of narrative and text. So the fact is, I think, we kind of tend to, you know, put children in boxes and here are the kind of drawings and this is perspective, but these actually, you know, they are testimony and they can be used you know in different ways and kind of you know as evidence for support of criminal you know prosecution case here right.
0: right i think i i have many children in my life <laughs> i respect and admire them you know they're they're people they have they have experiences um and they the ways that they choose to share them are valid um and underlying this lack of collection is, I think, the implication that they are not valid in some way. Um, but as you, as you say, they, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that there's any more kind of legitimizing uh, stamp than being used as evidence in international criminal court. Um, all right, we are, <laughs> let's get back to your work now. Um, That actually, that kind of leads me to our classic closing question. We do have more to talk about, as ever. So listeners, you should read the book. (laughs) There's plenty more, but we're running out of time. Um, So I will ask, what are you working on now?
1: So at the moment, uh, I'm developing aspects of this project and really the home movies and self-projection, self-projection, sorry, as forms of testimony and creative kind of visual and political practice about you know movement and obstruction in times of conflict and post-conflict. Um, and I'd like to investigate these practices a bit more in local and transnational kind of terms, especially in relation to cine clubs. You know, this is a global practice of people and home movies and the family and regeneration, but also uh, kind of cultivating social and community spaces through home movies, um, the Jewish DPs were active and vigilant image makers, and they're really part of a global cinematic movement, whether they knew it or not. Um, and it seemed to kind of embolden them even more to put this record of archive, um, the record of their kind of um, a displacement, um, you know, down. And it really, to me, it gives them some kind of hope as well as that they're creating this, but will they return to it? And really the story is the fate of these movies, do they go with the survivors, which they do most of the time, to a new country? Do they get rewatched? When do they get donated to the museums? What's the kind of pathway from their kind of status as home movie to kind of archival source? This is the kind of big question I think is that we haven't really grappled with too much. This is something I want to address. I agree.
0: Well, I will keep an eye out and you'll probably get an email from me <laughs> to come back <laughs> whenever that's published. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Um thank you. and I hope you
1: have a great day. Thank you. Hello. Thank you so much.